We are going to be spread throughout these chapters in this first message of a series regarding the Holy Spirit and His gifts that is described here in 1 Corinthians. So if you have found it, let's please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-11. through I'll bring it reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another work in miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Well, this morning we embark on another series. And uh, some of you are probably a little fearful and full of trepidation after our last couple of times where we dealt with the theology of singleness out of 1 Corinthians. And we discovered that maybe there, we need a different view of that than what our society has been promoting. And then after having a series on appropriate worship, including aspects of our attire and the way we, uh, our appearance as well as participation in communion and all those principles that we've been trying to lay down for how we ought to be doing church. You're probably going, oh man, what's he going to come up with now? We have three chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you think about all the options that are out there and all the different viewpoints that are extant today in the church, uh, we want to take time to really examine what does God's Word say. And this is our priority. And that doesn't mean that we are going to sit and teach, this is how we've always done it. And hopefully you've picked that up in the course of our study in 1 Corinthians where we have had to make some significant adjustments in our thinking, in our attitudes. And hopefully, once that occurs and we submit ourselves to the truth of God's Word, that will make some significant changes in our actions. And that's when I believe we really have submitted ourselves to God's Word. So last week, we saw in culminating chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, the need that we have to address our celebration of the Lord's table. And we did that last week. And Lord willing, that will be something that will be applied every time from now forward. As long as I have that uh, responsibility of laying forth how we conduct that table, it will likely be done in that fashion with those principles because they are not my principles. They are Baptist principles. 
They are simply from the Bible and they must be adhered to. Or we can pick and choose whatever we want to obey out of the Bible or disobey. So either we take it all as authoritative in our lives or we can't really claim to be true Christians. It's fundamentally that fact. Either Christ is your Lord and what he says you must do or you are the Lord of your life. And if you have yourself as Lord of your life, then you do not have a Savior named Jesus Christ, for He is one and the same. So we come to chapter 12, and we're going to address a very difficult area of worship. And again, our fundamental statement in Corinthians is going to be put forth yet again and applied, and we're going to find certain words used over and over and over again in these three chapters, and it does take three chapters here, First Corinthians, to really address this area of spiritual gifts. So it's not something that we've just muddied the waters recently with in the modern tongues movement, but we really muddied these waters all the way back to the early church, first century. They were already having problems with it back there in Corinth, and so it's unlikely that I'm going to resolve it for the whole universal church today um, here. But... Hopefully, over the next few weeks, we will get a good biblical perspective of this and a balanced approach to this area that will keep us from doing horrible things to the work of the Holy Spirit, of inhibiting Him, of limiting Him, of grieving Him. But neither are we going to go to the other extreme of going into experientialism where that defines spiritual walk, is what experiences you have had with the Spirit. And we're going to Find, I hope, a biblical middle, middle ground there. And by the way, we're not trying to sit a fence here. You will not find me say, well, believe what you want. You know, it could be this way or that way. That is not what I'm talking about. That is not a balanced theology. A balanced theology of the Holy Spirit and His gifts is definitely taking a position but it is one that takes into account all of God's Word. And when we do that, we come into balance and it's not going to throw us to one direction or the other where we are ignoring the Holy Spirit nor where He becomes the definition of our worship experience, but rather that we see His true action amongst us and that we respond to that action of the Holy Spirit by faith in our belief and by faith in our activity of worship. Remember the overlying statement, and repeat it with me. If you've been here for weeks and weeks and weeks, you have to have this memorized. Say it with me. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that phrase that Paul introduced some chapters ago now um, has been played out again and again and again and again and again in every area. When we talk about, does that mean that we hate knowledge, that we want to just be experiential? No, it's that cursory knowledge. Knowledge just for knowledge's sake puffs us up. I know this about God's Word. I know this about God's words. I know this. I know, I know, I know, I know. When we start saying that, we hear ourselves saying, I know, I know, I know. When we are seeking to be instructed by God's Word, by God's Spirit, by God's messengers, um, you have been to the point of being puffed up. The Corinthian church was not ignorant, although Paul treats them that way because they're acting ignorant. They had a knowledge of the truth, but they misapplied it 
and they applied it for their own selfish purposes. And this is going to be true of the gifts of the Spirit as well. And so he's going to take this idea that real mature knowledge is balance. It is not just to swell my own head or my own position or my own experience, but rather it is going to be tempered, it is going to be confounded, is not confounded, confined, sorry, wrong word. It's going to be confined by my love. Just as the attributes of God are confined by His love for us so that He may engage in a relationship with us, you might say His attributes are confined, certainly. He loved us and therefore He died. He humbled Himself and became a servant. Uh, even to death on the cross, he, he lowered Himself and emptied Himself. All of those are descriptions of what the love of God did in confining His attributes so that He could minister to us salvation. And so we ought also to apply that same kind of sacrificial, loving commitment um, to the knowledge of God. And once we do that, it doesn't puff us up. It's rather building up others. So that is our foundational statement. And it's going to ring true again in these three chapters. We're not going to handle all three chapters. You know me better than that in one week. We're not going to do that. Uh, And of course, tucked in the middle of this extensive passage on the gifts of the Spirit is what many of you may have memorized and a portion of Scripture you find every Valentine's Day somewhere, and that is 1 Corinthians 13, which has very little to do with your romantic relationships one with another. In fact, I would say almost nothing. It has everything to do with edifying the church and what real love is that's going to edify the church. So we're going to get there. It's going to take a couple of weeks, but we're going to get there. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into the passage at hand here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord, we rejoice in the privilege of being gathered today in your name. And now, Lord, as we look into your word, we ask for your help. For we desperately need it. That what is communicated is according to your word of truth, that is directed by your Holy Spirit, that it is free from the opinions of this man or the philosophies of mankind. Um, Lord, that it might uh, ring pure of your word, of your truth. Lord, that we might receive it as such and that we might have that discernment to take what we believe and sacrifice it upon the altar of your truth. That we might come away from a passage such as this, pleasing you much better. For we are willing to adhere to your principles and make our beliefs in conformity with your truth. Help us, Lord, in this as you've promised to do. To those who gather your name, that you'd be here in our midst to affect your work in our lives. And we humbly pray you might have liberty to do so today, and that we might be a responsive people to your Spirit's work. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul begins chapter 12 with this statement, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... And so he has obviously switched gears, but we're still in this larger category of corporate worship. And corporate simply means as a body. Corporate, uh, corpus is your body. 
And so as a body of saints, here's your corporate worship, and here's what is wrong with it there in Corinth, and here's how it ought to be done um, by the church. And this is not a cultural statement, but rather one from God that has been revealed to Paul that transcends all cultures and nationalities. And so this is to be applied consistently, just as we have seen the other passages that are we're told to apply consistently in the church. That Because the argument doesn't go back to, well, this is the way we've always done it, but rather the argument goes back, for example, to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to the sacrifice of our Lord, the night of His betrayal. And, and so we keep going back in Scripture to the principles and we bring them into our corporate worship activities and we apply them consistently. When we fail to do that, we are going to enter into a worship that isn't really pleasing to God, is generally self-oriented instead of God-oriented, and it's going to lead us into error. And so we come to this passage and we find this transition into another aspect of the worship there in Corinth. Uh, the spiritual uh, giftedness that is there among the brethren. And we're going to find out a lot of distinction here of God's working. That God works differently among the brethren than He does among the lost. And that some aspects of His ministry through the Spirit is focused towards our evangelism. And some aspects of the Spirit's ministry are focused towards the edification or building up of the saints. Largely, our church services are not evangelistic. These services are for the building up of the saints, to train you. Um, in fact, I would contend that church is probably one of the very worst places to do evangelism. Um, it, the best place is to go out there and reach them where they are at. Uh, why is church one of the worst places? Because people think they're doing a very religious thing just by being here and that certainly God must be pleased with them for having done that much. Um, and nothing could be farther from the truth. And so we don't want to just uh, whitewash people. We want to actually see their souls regenerated through the powerful work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the best place to do that is out there where they are actively sinning. And they can't really say, well, I'm here and I'm all washed up and prettyified and I'm now ready to worship God and so God must be happy to have me. But rather out there where they are immersed in their filth of this world and we offer them where they are walking in darkness and where we offer them a light. And certainly there are aspects of the ministry of the Spirit that are focused there. But Paul's concern here is with the saints, with the brethren, with those who claim Christ and so it's appropriate here that we study this as we have been throughout this book. We come to a statement that had to be another one of those jabs in the Corinthian side, those little barbs that Paul uses extensively here to just kind of get their attention. Remember, this is a church that claimed to have spiritual knowledge. They made that claim. You know, I'm of this, I'm of that, I'm of this. I follow this teaching, I'm of this teaching. And we had that division that we discussed early on. And so they claimed this knowledge that they would discern the right teaching to follow and the foolishness of thinking that what Peter taught and what Paul taught and what Jesus taught and what Apollos taught were somehow distinguishable instead of recognizing they need to incorporate all of it in their worship. And so he comes with this little barb. Um, remember, he keeps asking, and this is the question he keeps bringing up, um, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? We've been visiting that statement over and over again. Remember, the statement knowledge puffs up and he keeps jabbing them because they claim to have this knowledge. 
And he comes to him and says, don't you know this stuff? And he says right off here in verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant. And ignorant basically is, I don't know. It doesn't mean stupid. Stupid means you can't know because you're stupid. You can't learn. Ignorant simply means you don't know. You haven't learned that. And there are many things in life that I'm ignorant of that doesn't make me uh, stupid. And so it's very important that we recognize that difference. He's not calling, not saying I want you to have this mental assent and that if you're really a Christian, you have to be able to, to have this comprehension level, uh, this high IQ. No, rather, you just need to learn it. And the learning of Christ is very simple, very basic principles that need to be applied. But he comes and says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not know. Just like he's been jabbing them with his little spiritual elbow. Don't you know this? Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? You're bought at the price? Therefore glorify God in your body? Don't you know that? Oh, yeah, we knew that. I know, I know. You can almost hear the Corinthians if they weren't under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I know, I know, I know that. You think I'm ignorant of this? Well, they've been exercising their spiritual gifts up the wahoo. I mean, they have been going at it. Okay, and they've been doing it just like they've been doing communion wrongly. They've been doing it under the spirit of self-exaltation because they haven't immersed their ministering of the spirit in the love of God and the love for his saints. And therefore, it has been exercising simply and purely out of self-interest. And that demonstrates that they did not have a mature knowledge of it. Just as they didn't have a mature knowledge or understanding of the communion table, they did not have a mature knowledge or understanding of the marital relationship, they did not have a mature knowledge uh, or understanding of your physical appearance, they did not have a mature knowledge or understanding of any of these areas. And so we expect it here. And he's going to carry this jab a little bit farther forward. Verse 2, you know, you see that? Here's what you do know. You're largely seen to be ignorant of this principle that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I'm going to have to teach you what love is here in a little while. Um, but you're ignorant of that. I don't want you to be ignorant of it, so I'm going to teach it to you again. It's unlikely that he didn't teach it to him before. He's going to teach it to him again. And he says, here's what you do know. Here's what you do have firsthand knowledge about, and that is that you were Gentiles. Here's what you have really good knowledge of. And it's time that we face this fact. Um, if you come to the church, to a church service like this, say, oh, he's going to study First Corinthians chapter 12. I already know what that says. and I know how to use it. Um, I know, I know, I know. Um, you're in deep trouble. Because we really don't. Here's what you really know best. You know how to be a dirty, rotten sinner. You know how to do that really well. You are experts at it. Why? Well, you've been doing it pretty much almost since birth. Not quite, but pretty close. You've been doing it for a long, long time. You've had plenty of practice at it. And so he says, listen, here's what you really know. Here's what you have a really clear understanding of. And that is what it means to be a sinful human, to be a Gentile, to be an enemy of God. That's what you have real, true depth of understanding in is how to sin. 
and what it means to not walk with God. We are very adept at that. We lived much of our younger lives in that. And even for those of us like myself, I, uh, accepting Christ as a 10-year-old, so how much sin could you do before 10? Well, plenty. Trust me. And I didn't just stop sinning when I got saved at 10. I was very adept at that well into my teens and 20s. And of course, now that I'm 50, I'm too old to sin. So I've just totally lost track of it, right? You see, we know, we know sin. We know how to deceive even ourselves. We know that area. That is something we have clear understanding of. He says, listen, here's what you have real knowledge of the Corinthians. You know how to be Gentiles. What you don't know is how to be godly. Not really. I mean, we don't. We might have, well, you know, here's the Ten Commandments. I got those down, and, and I, I try on those. But that whole, you know, some of that's really tough, and, and it's the Old Testament anyway. And then this, this other instructions in God's Word, and, and oh, I know, but you don't. You're not proficient with it. You aren't mature enough in it to really walk in it and to really uh, subordinate what you were to what God calls you to be. And this is why church after church after church comes to the book of 1 Corinthians and marginalizes huge portions of it based upon culture. That's just his culture. Women being silent in church. We're going to get to that. Chapter 14. That's just his culture. Yes, um, because you know how to be Americans. Let's put ourselves in the verse here, verse 2. Therefore, you, oh, I'm sorry, you know you are Gentiles. You know how to be Americans. You know because all of you have been raised, not all of you your whole life. There's a few here that were around before the, the women's liberation movement. Um, You've lived, for the most part, all of you have lived your lives under that movement. Yeah, I know you know that. I know you know how to express that and how the arguments for it. You know all that. Um, sure. That's what you're proficient at. You're proficient at understanding American ideology in terms of what personal liberty is um, without responsibility. We lost that somewhere back there. Um, we, we understand what it means to be sinners. In this world. The problem is not that you don't understand it. You do. You have a perfect knowledge of that area. Here's the problem. Is that we never get to the second half of it. Uh, it says, listen, uh, Corinthians, here's what you were like, just in case you need a reminder. Uh, you were carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Everywhere you went, remember, you guys who are so smart now, Remember what you were? You were following after rocks and pieces of wood, of chunks of silver or gold. And you were, they couldn't talk to you. They didn't interact with you. You made them into the form that they were. You set them on the shelf. You have to dust them off. When they get dusty, they can't dust themselves off. And you were following them. And you were asking them what you should do day by day. How dumb is that? You great knowers. You claim to have this great knowledge of what God is about. But when we look really, what do I really understand? I understand how to live like the world. 
I know how to do that really well. And because that's my comfort zone, here's what I do when I come to church. I try to bring as much of that in and rationalize, bring as much of that into the church so that I can be just as comfortable in church as I am out there. And of course, our world encourages that because that simply compromises the message of God's Word. And the more watered down the message of God's Word is, the more comfortable the world feels with us. And so it works both ways. All the while, both the world and the church are going straight to hell. Comfortably, but they're going there. Paul says, listen, do you remember? You, this is what you really understand. You understand how to be a Gentile daily going to a stupid piece of rock that couldn't talk to you and asking it what you should do today. You're really good at that. That's what you really understand. You have a mature knowledge of Gentilian behavior and thought. And we're going to radically shake that when we get to chapter 13 and find out what real love is. And if you think, oh, I know 1 Corinthians 13, um, probably not. You know what the words say, but, it, but you're really just tr- interpreting those through the lens of your American society that you have been ingrained with because you know how to be Gentiles. To follow after the idols of this world. We have a really good knowledge of that. But there's something we need to learn today differently and relearn. And we need to come to a mature knowledge of God's Word. Well, how do I do that? By putting it into practice consistently in your life, day in and day out, not by the standards that I learned out there, but by the standards I learn in here, in this book. That it has absolute authority. And though the world calls me weird, though some people call me fanatical, I'm going to live according to this truth. Because this is now what defines me. And so we come to verse 3 and we finally enter into what Paul wants them to know. Therefore I make known to you, because you are really only aware of how to be good Gentiles, I've got to show you something different. I needed to make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, is this some crazy secret formula that if you say these exact words, it means either you have or don't have the Holy Spirit? Uh, That is is only Holy Spirit. Is is he trying to communicate only Holy Spirit-filled people can say the three words in order, Jesus is Lord. And since I just said it, therefore I must have the Holy Spirit. Is that what he's trying to communicate here? No. What he's saying is that if you have a genuine relationship with the Holy Spirit, it has a direct relationship to Jesus Christ being your master, your Lord, the one that you will obey. That obedience is no longer toward the world and toward the old one that I was, but obedience is now driven by the Holy Spirit towards Jesus Christ as my master and Lord. That there now is where my obedience lies. There now is where I look to to define my living and to define my church's culture. How are we going to live as a community? And I don't look around and say, well, this is the way it's always been done. I look to Christ's 
to His Word by the Holy Spirit, and I find that what I'm going to communicate is that Jesus is Lord. And to do otherwise, that is, if I deny Christ's Lordship, which is what I mentioned earlier, you cannot possibly have the Spirit of God within you. If you don't have the Spirit of God within you, you are none of His. And so to simply turn your back and to say, um, you know, Jesus is anathema. I don't want to hear His name. I don't want to follow Him. Um, or even just in a mediocre way to just say, oh, I don't really care. And by the way, that's worse. I'd rather deal with somebody that hates God than someone that doesn't care whether there is one or not. Much easier to share Christ with those who hate Him. I love atheists. They're much easier to deal with than the people who just don't care. Much easier. Because they are thinking about it. They're thinking about the things of God and whether to come to that statement and that declaration. And so we come to here and Paul says, I'm going to need you to know something. That is that if you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus is your Lord. They go hand in hand. And so in our practice of worship, we need to conform ourselves to the instruction of God's Word, to Jesus Christ, by the power and the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead us into this truth and that if Jesus Christ is really the Lord of our life, if He is really in charge of us, we will subordinate ourselves to that truth. And that is this teaching here. It is not some magical terminology that we use to measure whether someone's really of the Spirit or not. Rather, it's a measure of your commitment. To whom are you committed? You're committed to Christ as your Lord? Then that demands obedience. Well, do we, what is, how's it going to manifest itself in this area of the Spirit? So the Spirit's primary evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life is you have submitted your will that Jesus is your Lord. And if you're here today and you're in charge of you and Jesus is anathema except for on Sunday mornings to your life, um, I have to challenge you of the Spirit's absence likely absence in your life. And if the Holy Spirit is absent in your life, that you are none of His, that you are not a child of God, that you have not uh, submitted yourself to Him in salvation. Now, having said that, we can equally declare that if you are here today, regardless of what experience you have in the past, and in your heart of hearts, your desire is, I want to be obedient to God. I want in every facet of my living to please my Lord Jesus, my Master. And as He reveals Himself to me, my response to Him is not, I know, I know, but I haven't, I haven't. Please forgive me. I will. I will. When that is in our heart, that willingness to radically change ourselves from what we know so well to what we have a little bit of knowledge of but not a mature knowledge of, um, that is the working of the Holy Spirit. It's to divorce ourselves from that old life. 
yeah, I was once that and I'm really good at it. I know how that works. And it's easy to just carry it over into this new life and to think that somehow it can fit in there. And so my music taste back there could be my music taste here. Um, my work ethic back there could be my work ethic here. Um, my dress code back then could be my dress code here. My speech back then could be my speech here. I mean, pick any area of life you want. Because Christ has a demand on all of you. All of what you are and what you do, Christ makes demands of you. Either He is your Lord, which means that the Spirit of God is within you, and now we can begin to discuss His gifts. But if Jesus Christ isn't the Lord of your life, any exercise you do in the church, any ministry you do in the church, is purely of your own making and not of the Holy Spirit's. I say, can that be done? It's done all the time. In fact, I would contend that the majority of the church today are exercising not spiritual gifts, but natural abilities and calling it spiritual gifts. And we're going to learn a little bit about the difference. In fact, you can't do a, every study of the gifts of the Holy Spirit I've ever participated in um, has always had spiritual gift inventory. So we're going to do that. No, we're not. We're not going to do your spiritual gift inventory. Because the first response, everybody says, what spiritual gifts do I have? And we've fed that in the church for too long. Frankly, I think the whole point of these is going to be it doesn't really matter. If this verse isn't right first. Because any gift must be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Or it is fundamentally worthless. So before we get into figuring out what your spiritual gifts are, we better back up and make sure the Holy Spirit is really there to begin with. And from what I can tell of every spiritual gift inventory test that I've taken, I've taken plenty over the course of my Christian experience um, from high school and college and seminary and in churches, various places, um, from every one of them that I've taken, what I see is an assessment of what your natural abilities are. And based upon every spiritual gift inventory test that I've ever taken, I should not be here preaching to you today. Well, why am I doing this? Because it's not by natural ability. I've grown a little more comfortable with the job since I've been doing it for 25 years, but it's still not something I naturally would have chosen. And that, I think, is one of the keys to spiritual gift is that God receives the glory and not you. But before we ever get to the listing of the gifts and what they're about, we must, we must confront this. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, here are my gifts, and walk out of here with this knowledge that puffs up that is totally immature and totally out of sync with what God has instructed us with regard to those gifts of the Spirit. And there's too much of that going on all over the place. And I've had people come into church and say, Pastor, here's my gifts, put them to use. And I'm like, do you think our church needs that? It doesn't matter, it's my gifts. Oh, 
we back up and we remember the application of the simple principle, knowledge puffs up. If we walk around saying, you're not using my gifts, Pastor, and I've heard that too in my time, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else where they appreciate my gifts and I'll use them. Um, by the way, uh, the exercise of your gifts is not up to me. It's entirely up to you. This principle calls us to a maturity that Jesus is Lord, is the beginning of ministry. Not, here's my spiritual gift inventory list. The beginning of ministry, the beginning of the evidence that I can point to in someone's life that the Spirit of God is in control of their life is when everything about their life declares to me, Jesus is Lord. He is my King. He rules here. He defines me. He directs me. He empowers me. And He alone will I serve. When that is there, then we know that we're beginning with a spirit filled person. And we're not going to go a step further until that's taken care of in this church. That as individuals come in, our first examination is not what can you do for us? What kind of ministry should you be involved in? But our first question is, is Jesus your Lord? Prove it. Prove it. Give us the evidence. Demonstrate to us that Jesus truly is your Lord, that the Holy Spirit has led you into that truth because you submitted to the Savior, Jesus Christ, back then and you have now surrendered yourself to Him and now it is simply your desire to walk with Him, though not perfectly, perhaps. Pretty much, certainly. Um, But steadily, you're seeking to have Jesus your Lord. This is the first fruit of of the Spirit of God in you is your statement made by your life, not by your mouth, that Jesus is your Lord. Nothing else is done in the Spirit's name until this is taken care of. So we begin not at the far end and work backwards like most churches. We're going to begin here and say, listen, I don't want you to have a knowledge of your spiritual gift down there and have you walk around with this big head puffing up and you're going to use your spiritual gift whether you li- whether they like it or not. No, we're going to start here where God calls us to this truth. For mature knowledge of our spiritual gifts will be of no benefit if this isn't right first, that Jesus is your Lord, that He calls the shots in your life, then we can press on. And where do we press on to? We're not going to get right into the gifts. He's going to list some here in our passage. But we press on to very quickly to verse 4. The first thing we find about it is this wonderful trifold statement. And if anyone wants to... This has to be in the top ten. We'll put it like that. This has to be in the top ten of passages that call us to the triunity of our, our God. 
Here we go. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. Do you see it? We have the Spirit. We're not going to deal with the Spirit as a separate entity somehow that we can, we can talk about Him without also referencing Jesus Christ and God the Father. They are one. So you cannot sit here be claiming to minister in the Holy Spirit and not be living a life where Jesus is your Lord. How can you separate those? And this is what the Corinthian church was doing. And Paul says, no wonder you're, you're doing it wrong because you're fundamentally trying to minister by the Spirit of God and ignoring the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, ignoring the Father. That they're involved, they're active agents in this. That this is, this is more than just three entities cooperating, they are one. And one will not deny the other. One will not lead against the other. And this is very important, okay? Because I've heard a lot of people out there who are claiming to do things in the Holy Spirit of God and the result of what they're doing is doing damage to the name of Jesus. What do I have to conclude from that? Is that what they're doing in the name of the Spirit is not being done by the Spirit. For the Spirit will never oppose the work of Christ or the work of the Father. Never. And so when we look at this plurality of gifts, we have all this, this big gift pot that we can draw out of, or that we don't draw out of, actually gets poured onto us. And, uh, and we look at all the choices and all the, all the options that are out there available for ministry and all the different ways it can be used in, in ministry among God's people and in the world. And we look at all of that, but we find that in the midst of all of this, it's fundamentally not just the Spirit, but it's the Lord and it's God the Father and they're all working there in this diversity that has a singular purpose. And if that singular purpose is missing, the diversity is of no value. And the singular purpose of God is to glorify His name. And if your exercise of the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, does not glorify the name of Jesus Christ and the Father, as well as the Spirit, We'll have none of it. For God will have none of it. You are glorifying yourself, but not Jesus Christ, and not God, nor the Spirit. So one of the measures of our exercise of ministry really um, comes in this evaluation, is it all pointing in the same direction? Is it all pointing to glorify God? The Spirit, Father, Son, are we all, is it, is all this work exalting Him? Is it lifting Him up? Remember, exalt, lift up. Is it exalting Him? Is He what is getting the glory and the honor and the praise? And is it consistent with all that we have Given, been given in God's Word referencing 
all of who and what God is. This is our measure. And so we begin by looking inside of our own hearts and saying, listen, if Jesus isn't Lord, and if that isn't evident in my living, then I can't even begin down this path of this extensive path here in 1 Corinthians of evaluating my spiritual gifts because the Spirit, if He is there, has been so smothered by your self-orientation that He is not going to do anywhere. He is being quenched, as the term Thessalonians uses. Don't quench the Holy Spirit of God. That You can almost smother Him out by your selfish activity and because Jesus isn't Lord of your life, there's nothing more that can be done. And once we begin down that road, the first step, the first understanding to really bring to this idea of spiritual gifts, the idea of edifying the church, is will this activity, the manner in which it's done, the statement that it's communicating, glorify God? I'm going to pull out an example from way ahead of us. Um, Paul's going to give an example of... uh, speaking in tongues. And he's going to ask a question. Um, I'm not going to read it because I'm going to read it when I get to it. He's going to ask a question. If an unbeliever walks in your midst and you're all talking at one time and babbles in various languages, what are they going to think when they walk in? These people are crazy. They're insane. They're not going to understand it. If you're, if you're, even if you're all talking in languages that are known and not this heavenly language that every charismatic person or Pentecostal person claims to have access to. It's amazing. None of them can come off with a real language. Um, they still have to go to language school and go to the mission field. Figure that one out. Don't know how that happens or is necessary. Um, what happens when they come in? Paul says, what happens when an unbeliever comes into your congregation, comes into your worship service, and hears you all going at it in your various tongues, all simultaneously, no one interpreting, what is their conclusion? Is it, praise God? No, it's, this is really freaky. And it should be their response. Because what you're doing isn't exalting the Lord. And Paul says, but if they walk in and they hear you teaching, he uses the word prophesying a lot, you hear you teaching and communicating understandable words, they can come to know Christ. And we know that glorifies Him, don't we? You see, this is going to be our measure of our spirit work in our church. Number one is Jesus, the Lord of the one ministering. Is this one who wants to exercise that spiritual gift, humbling himself or herself, to Jesus Christ and saying, He's the Lord of my life. What He says I must do, even if it goes contrary to my culture, even if it goes contrary to what everyone else is doing, um, I'm going to follow it. Secondly, is this work glorifying and exalting Jesus Christ, the Father and the Spirit? And so fundamentally, are we glorifying God? And then thirdly, my last point for today, (laughs) verse 7. Manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of 
all. And we're going to visit this time and again in the verses to come. Let me just jump forward with you a little bit and take you on a little walk through this and find out where we have this. Let's jump ahead to 14, chapter 14, verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And that is really the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the church. First, to bring glory to God. Secondly, to edify the church. Look down in verse 9. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Then what have you accomplished other than puffing yourself up? Instead, verse 12, even so, of chapter 14, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Why are we interested in them at all? Not for you, but rather for the edification or building up of the church. He keeps on referencing this throughout. I'm just picking out a few. Chapter 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however mouths be babes, but in understanding be mature. There needs to be understanding in what we're doing. Now, there have been some statements made regarding most Baptist churches, especially regular Baptists, but others of conservative Baptist churches, that we don't have the Holy Spirit working at all in our midst because we have railed so hard against the Pentecostal movement, and we're going to address that when we get to the tongues aspect here. But we want to begin by understanding that the purpose of the church is not experiential, but understanding. The Holy Spirit does not bring disorder or chaos. He brings understanding. And if we walk out of there confused, or if an unbeliever walks in and walks out totally confused and goes, that was just way outside of my... Uh, I didn't get any of that. They're rolling around, they're jumping, they're throwing things, they're, they're laughing, they're falling over, they're, they're gibberishing all over the place. Um, why does it benefit them? When the Spirit of God is at work, one of the things that should be there is the building up of the church. And Paul says, listen, a few words with understanding is worth hundreds of another language. The work of the Holy Spirit in us, the manifestation of which of these gifts, certainly is given to each one of us. That's there. I don't deny it. They are an aspect of His grace, but they are not for you. They are given to you, but they are for the benefit of the church. And you ought to be exercising them in that respect. And it doesn't matter what they are. He's going to give us a a brief uh, listing here. This is not exhaustive. There's no exhaustive list of the gifts in God's Word anywhere. I always wondered why the the, uh, gift inventory tests always only had these ones listed in Scripture as though they were exhaustive. Nowhere are there any exhaustive lists. You'll hear me say that a dozen times probably over the next few weeks. One is given the word of wisdom. Another word of knowledge. We're going to talk about what these are next week. Another faith. 
Not the work of miracles, but look at the thing. It's the same Spirit. The same Spirit of God is at work and it has the same purpose. And if one over here is doing something in the Spirit's name, and someone over here is doing something in the Spirit's name, and they are contradicting one another, we can have a strong confidence that one of them is an error. One of them is not of the Holy Spirit. And we must have discernment, and the discernment is measured right here, and that is, first of all, is Jesus Lord of both of these lives. Number two, is God exalted in both of these ministries? And number three, is the church edified? We work our way through this, and these are the criteria of discerning this exercise of spiritual gifts. Number one, is Jesus the Lord of the one exercising it or claiming to possess it? Number two, is God exalted? Not only the Spirit and, oh, bless the Spirit, bless the Spirit, bless the Spirit. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you, Spirit. But it's, it's Jesus and the Father. It's the oneness. It's a, it, it has to be in absolute agreement with all of Scripture and what it reveals of the Spirit of the Lord and of the Father. And then thirdly, is it benefiting the church? Is there genuine benefit involved there? For this is the Spirit's work. This is its purpose. Not to exalt us or you, but to strengthen us. To build something enduring in others. I don't know about you, but I've been to plenty of uh, pep rallies. And they don't last. I would not call a pep rally an enduring work of God. But many churches have boiled down to that. It's not edifying. It's exciting. It might get me charged up for a little bit. And I can run out there in my adrenaline and do a few things. But it's not building. It's not substantive. It's not enduring. And the Holy Spirit, when He works through His gifts, is going to build something in us, in the church. And it's going to be an enduring work. And Paul says, listen, if you want what's enduring, it's better be according to understanding. You say, well, wait a minute. Knowledge puffs up. Why do we want more knowledge? No, we want mature knowledge. Mature knowledge that is measured, balanced by the biblical concept of sacrificial love. And it says, I'm going to take what I have from God as a measure of His grace and I'm going to grace others with it. And this is the calling of God in terms of spiritual gifts that we're going to seek to investigate in the coming weeks. These three must fundamentally be in place as we evaluate everything else all the other stuff that's out there, all the milieu around the Holy Spirit that churches have generated over the centuries. And how do we measure them? Not by what I'm comfortable with, not by what my old life was like, not by my personality. We measured against this truth and this one alone. Let's pray.